sang this song to me. There was a message in his melody, sweetest lyrics that I ever heard. There's a message in the songs of her. He said, Tomorrow is another day. Living is the only way. Tomorrow's gonna ever come. Listen to the words of the song. Fantastic. We are here again with one excellent connection to Facebook using Zoom. I want to welcome everyone who's looking at the show and who will look at it later uh, to a sip of inspiration. And as you know, in a sip of inspiration, I try to bring you programming that will actually help you change your life right now. I like to bring you easy to use techniques and ideas that will cause you to think about things that you want to do and actually people who can help you see that anything that you stay focused on that you can do. So joining me for tonight's episode is Gerald. I love Gerald, Gerald J. Leonard. So I was looking around for an interesting guest and I, I discovered Gerald. The thing that I like about Gerald is Gerald wrote a book says developing a, that talks about seven ways to develop a culture that works. But in this whole process, Gerald has tied this to music. And I thought that that was just incredibly unique. And I just had to talk to him and I had to meet him. So I thought that you guys would enjoy him too. So I'm going to introduce you to Gerald and have Gerald tell you a few things about yourself. Hi, Gerald. Thank you for joining me. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much. And wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get started, though, I want you not, guys to know that I learned from Gerald that practice is the performance, and he's going to talk a little bit about that. So when I was asked to do a dry run the other day, right. I was going to say, no, then that voice says, you know, practice is the performance. So exactly. I said, exactly. yes, and I practice. How you practice is how you perform. That's right. And when they asked me, do you want to practice again? I said, yes. That was the Gerald voice <laughs> in me, because that was not the Stephanie voice. Oh, uh, welcome yeah. and introduce yourself to the audience. Well, Stephanie, my name is Gerald Leonard and I'm excited to be here and thank you for reaching out and, and uh, allowing me to share this time with you and, and, and the audience and, and the folks online. Um, I am a, you know, classical and jazz bass player that grew up in Lakeland, Florida and went to college to an HBCU and Central State University, then down to Cincinnati Conservatory. Um, long story short, went to the ministry for a few years and then came back out and kept playing music while I was doing a lot of different things that I was doing and started doing both, playing music and going into business. And I'd already had my master's, so I didn't really wanna go down that road again. And I realized that certifications was the way. And as I went down this road of developing and getting certifications and still playing, I began to see this, this unique combination of that music and playing in music ensembles and working in small teams in business had a lot in common. And um, down the road, Willie and D. Jolly gave me this idea, planted this idea in about around 2015 of being all about that bass. And I took that and ran with it and combined the two. And then here I am later with my first book, Culture's the Base, and my book, uh, Workplace Jazz, that's being published by Business Expert Press is coming out this fall. Fantastic. So there's some basic questions we're gonna ask so that the audience can get to know you as yes. much as I do. Because um, I want them to know more about you than practices the performance. So. <laughs> So how did you get started in this particular field? I know you, you, you had the idea about uh, the, you, the music and it's all about that bass. So right. what was your first, what, what was one of the first things you did? Because people do try to combine their love for a thing like music yeah. with their passion for another thing. And sometimes it doesn't go well, but it right. seems to have worked very well for you. So yeah. how did you do that? And what, and what do you think has made you successful throughout your career? Um, it's been seeking out mentors and coaches 
who've done similar things themselves. For instance, uh, Dr. Willie Jolly was a jazz singer. And he talks a lot about this um, in a lot of his materials where um, he was performing at a club and the club eventually uh, replaced him with a, a karaoke machine and he had to reinvent himself. And he became a speaker and actually became one of the top speakers in the world. But he always remembered his roots of being a musician and being a singer. And so he combined the two. Um, there was a gentleman named Jim Cathcart who plays, he's written like 18 books, um, has been part of the National Speakers Association. He's a business consultant, but he's also a ph phenomenal guitar player. And he became one of my coaches, a guy named Mike Rayburn, who uh, played guitar and went to uh, James Madison and studied, but then became a speaker. And he's one of the top speakers in the world for playing guitar and music. He's performed at Carnegie Hall three times. So I went after people who I saw were doing something that I would, would want to do and, and be able to combine it. Mm -hmm. And by seeking them out, getting coaching, paying for services, paying for coaching, paying for mentoring, you know, investing in myself, um, they helped me clear up ideas. I, I went to conferences and I would share my idea with the breakout groups that, that I would be put with and they would give me additional ideas. And so I think one of the challenges is when you have a lot of different ideas and you think there's some meat on the bones, if you will, mm -hmm. for some of these ideas, one of the best things to do is, and it takes humility to say, I don't know how to do this by myself because none of us are going to be a self-made person by themselves. We always are made as a community. Um, and by finding people who, you know, success leaves, leaves, um, leaves footprints. And by finding people who are really successful in doing what you want to do and approaching them, many of them will be honored to, to take you on or give you some advice. And by being persistent with that, it, it happened over time. So I like what you said that no one is self-made, that we're actually made by the community. So that's a, that's a good thing for us to remember. And then we back up some. You mentioned that you actually had to start to pay for mentoring and coaching. Yeah. And I bring that up because there is so much free mentoring and coaching online. So even I do, a, in, in my uh, consulting, I do a free coaching module. And some people think that that's just enough. Right. So the, free, the free coaching is just to get you interested. They're not giving you the real, they're not giving you the gems. And so, um, the, the, this idea came from a, a paid weekend. So I did like, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, no, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, coaching at Willie and D's house with a small group. And it was a, it was a, it was a, a five figure, um, investment in myself, but by spending time with them, I got all of his books, all of his materials. I got to have lunch and dinner with them and really share openly about what I was trying to do and where I was trying to go. And, you know, Willie has certain things and his wife D is a, um, is a, um, an educator. So she has a master's in education. She knew how to pull things out of me that I didn't know how to pull out of myself. And so between the two of them, they were able to help me to see some things about where I was trying to go that, that if I wouldn't have spent that weekend and spent that time and spent the money investing in myself, I would have never figured it out. Okay, so it was a worthwhile weekend. I try to um, get people to understand that you do get to a point where you really do need to invest in yourself. Well, well one of the, I have an article that I wrote and I, and I have this in my second book, um, uh, Workplace Jazz, and it basically says the highest people, the highest paid people in the world love feedback but they love feedback from other experts ah. because you think about, you think of Tiger Woods, he still has a coach. He has like what, five or six green jackets. He still has a coach. Why? Because if he can take, if he can um, add a few more inches in his putting or, or a few more feet in his driving, that makes him that much better because at that level of player of play, it's, it's not miles. It, it becomes, inches and centimeters and, and just a, a, a nudge that's going to make you better. And by getting expert coaching and expert insight, that's what's going to take you over the top and, and really help you to become great. And also we're not too old to learn. You know, uh, I still take classes and read books and, and listen to things and, and, and get coaching even, even as I'm speaking right now. Well, that's fantastic. So tell us some more about your story. So, how did you find the hidden soundtracks 
combining music and business consulting. I know you said you found it through other ideas, but how did that become the thing that's tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, this thing right over here, this thing is for you? Okay, so it, it was really playing music live and continually playing throughout my life. Uh, I've been playing since I was 12 uh, or really 10. Um, and um, so I've been playing for, for over, over 40 years. <laughs> okay, I've been playing for over 40 years. And when I got <laughs> okay, into business- no, we're, just gonna, we're not gonna age it. We're just gonna say you've been playing since you were- Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm well seasoned. How's that? <laughs> All right, well seasoned, been, I like I've, that. I've been turned over and seasoned. <laughs> but not seared yet, but just- Not, not, not seared, seared, but seasoned. <laughs> But you know, the, the thing is, is um, by doing both, right? By, by sitting and playing jazz and playing shows. And you, when, you, when you're playing music, let's say you're, you know, I remember doing something with a, 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 a church conference up in uh, St. Louis and we, we did a, a musical and I hadn't met the musicians, not all the musicians that I know. Within like two or three rehearsals, we were like best friends. Because music has that way of when you're performing and you're listening and you're trying to work together and you're playing your part, but you got to make sure you listen to everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, it, there's, this, there's this emotional and spiritual thing that happens that bring you together, irregardless of race, creed, or color. And what I noticed as a business consultant, so you know, I went on to um, you know, get a, a, a number of certifications um, and became a, a thought leader and business consultant in, in, in my, my practice. And it's in the areas of productivity and project and program portfolio management. But then I would be put on these projects where I'm helping a company and I'm part of a small team. And I started noticing that the projects that went really well had the same vibe as if I was rehearsing with a jazz group. Because okay. everyone was, everyone came to the meetings prepared and really focused on mastery of their skills. But at the same time, because they had focused on mastery of their skills, they could leave their ego at the door. So it wasn't about, look at me, look how much I can play, look at what I can do, look how great I am. It was, we're going to deliver X for this client. And now at this point, you're gonna take the lead because this is what you're good at. So everybody follows. And then now, now it's the developer's time or someone else's time. Now they have to take the lead and everyone else has to support them. Well, think about a jazz song you start off playing and you play the melody, you know, whether it's confirmation or, or some Martin thing, you know, I'll use confirmation. I like Charlie Parker and, and confirmation. So you go, right? So everybody's playing that. And then you start soloing. So let's say the saxophone player solos. Well, the bass player, the drummer, the piano player, they have to support him. They got to listen to where, what's his interpretation of this song? Ah. And then the piano player solos and everyone goes, okay, well, what's his interpretation? Then the bass player solos and everybody drops out. <laughs> and so he can hear the bass player. <laughs> That's, That's just right. what happens. Everybody just drops out and the bass player and the drummer are kind of doing their thing and then they come back in. But what I realized was it was the same concept and same skills, but musicians had honed these skills naturally. Because when you're in a room growing up and you're spending eight hours a day listening to music and rehearsing, and then when you start performing or practicing with someone, you have to really make sure you're listening and be in tune and to make sure you're playing the same style or, or creating the same mm -hmm. mood. And great teams have also learned to really listen. They've learned to surrender to support. They've learned to have a great vision. They've learned to master their instruments and leave their ego at the door and bring their skills to the table to support the overall holistic whole of what they're trying to do. I do have one question that just rolled yeah. in from our Facebook family is, are you saying that you're equating self-development with music that they sort of go together? Oh, they totally go together because, because, you know, I, I like I said, I started playing when I was 10 and, and you know, the story is um, my sister had a little red guitar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if she's listening, it's a little red guitar that we still have at her house and uh, the strings are off it now. And it had little white tuning knobs. And it was hers, but as a 10 year old, I'd sneak into her room and grab it and I'd play. Uh, I took piano, I wasn't really interested in that, and she wasn't really playing it. So I'd sneak into her room and play it. 
So one day she caught me and she realized she wasn't going to play it. So she let me have it. And as a sister would, she let me have the guitar and she let me have it for stealing a guitar. <laughs> she let me have it. But since then, I really fell in love with playing. And I didn't realize that all of the musical training I did as a kid in middle school, in high school, that when I got to college, and, I had to, and when I got to college, actually, I'm just real honest, I, took some, I had to take some remedial classes because I was so into music that I wasn't focused on academics in high school. I mean, I got by, I graduated. But then when I went to Central State, I had to take some remedial classes. And then I, and I, and I, and I had to say, okay, I got a scholarship because of music. So I got to take the same attitude towards music and put it towards my academics. And then I realized that I was really good at math and I didn't know why. And it became, it was because of all those years of playing music. Yeah. And what I realized was that you're, that in music, you're developing the same part of your brain that contains the mathematical part. So when I picked up IT and technology computers, it was like picking up another instrument. And so, yes, music is, is critical. And I think it, it, to me, one of my pet peeves about music, especially with schools, is when things get tough, they want to cut music. And they don't yes. realize the disservice that they're doing to the children because some of those kids, that's the only way they're going to develop that musical and mathematical part of their brain. And they have fun doing it and they like doing it. Right, you're right. They cut music, art, and physical education. Exactly. Right. All the things that you need. <laughs> All the things that you really need. That's right. So I was thinking about, um, you said that you know, when you're, you're right, when a group is together and you're planning, and I'm thinking about some of the most successful projects I've had the uh, opportunity to work on, it is like a concert. You do listen to what the other people have to say, and then you figure out how to fit that in, or if you have something different, it's an expansion, and no one is thinking about ego. Everybody is thinking about how the piece is going to come together, how the project exactly. is going to come together. Exactly. Oh, that's exactly. fantastic. Cool. And that, yeah, and it's the same mindset of the jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. So we know that you have coaches and mentors and stuff. So tell me why you chose those particular mentors and how have they helped? And do you still keep in contact with them? Or do you find that after a period of time that uh, the people that you use for mentors and role models and coaches change and why? Because sometimes you people don't know do you stay with one person forever and what's the difference and how do you make the decision as to who's going to be your coach or your mentor? Right. So I, the way I did it was with coaches and mentors is I, I look at their record. I, I, I look at the results. If, if you say like for Willie and D Jolly, you say you're a speaker. Well, he was a, a, a hall of fame speaker. That meant that, that his peers at the highest level of the speaking industry said, you're one of the best. Um, that he had, he had spoken literally all over the world and he had performed, he did albums. And so I looked at his track record because, you know, anyone can talk a good game. Yeah. Right. Yes. And so when I first published my book, um, you know, culture is bass, you notice it has a, 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 a the bass player and the whole, and the seating. Well, when I first published it, if you go on Amazon, you'll, you'll find two versions of that book. One had a yes. purple, one had a purple color and like a bass. Yes. And that was, the, that was the one I fell in love with at first and really liked. And, but, but when people looked at it, they were confused because they thought, is this a music book or is this a business book? And so if I explained it to them, they'll say, oh, it's a business book. But this one, you can actually see that this is a business book. Yes. And so working with coaches helped me to say, wait a minute, I need to relaunch this book and redesign it. The second thing is when I first wrote the first book, it was self-published. As soon as I published the book, I started getting phone calls, emails, Twitters, Facebook re outreach. Uh, we have this service we want to sell you. So I go look up the company and go, okay, well, you have a couple of books on your website, but you got nothing. I mean, I haven't, I'm not seeing anything of value. So I then saw Jack Canfield. You know, Jack's written 46 yes. bestsellers, right? And Chicken Soup has sold over half a billion copies. Yes. So he's standing next to this guy that I've never seen before. So I'm looking at Jack and I'm listening to him and they talk about this thing called bestseller blueprint. And it's another, it's a, let's say, a, a, you know, it's a thousand dollar program. And I'm looking at it and I'm looking at him and I'm going, and then Jack says, this is Steve Harrison 
And Steve helped, oh, yeah. me, lunch. Steve helped me lunch chicken soup. I went, okay. He's, you got a, my, you got, R, R, he's the radio, the radio guy, uh, Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. PR, R, 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 right. Br Br exactly, Br Bradley Communications. Right. So I looked and said, okay, I don't have a thousand bucks in my pocket, but I do have a, I had I have a, with my consulting brand, I have an operational budget. Do you have a payment plan? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, because sometimes we let, we let money stop us. We think, okay, this is the goal. And I, I you know, do, do I have this? And sometimes folks are like, listen, I'm going to make, I'll make it available to you. So I got on a payment plan with them and I took that program. And then I did the next level program. I found that they had more. And so I looked at my budget. I looked at what I was doing. I looked at what that would possibly do for me. And I made the investment in myself. And it was a five-figure investment. Well, what did that five-figure investment get me? Well, it got me to republish this book where now it's selling really well and it's getting a lot of attention. It's gotten placed on the Entrepreneur Magazine as one of the top 15 books to read on business culture with, on the, in the same list of Simon Sinek's books about why and business culture and some other folks. It's gotten me a TEDx talk and coaches uh, and, and, and folks who, who, who train and teach people how to speak. It's got, it, I, I, I work with a, um, a designer and a, uh, a, a person who you know, kind of helps you with all your, how to dress and your colors and what works best for you and, 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 and those kinds of things I had never thought about. And then it got me a literary agent. Yay, those are hard to get. <laughs> it got me a literary agent. And the literary agent, was the same guy who worked with Jim Collins, who did Good to Great, Built to Life. Yeah, Good to Great, right. So that's my literary agent. And then, then we rewrote my, my, as I was working on my second book, we rewrote the book proposal and pitched it. I had Penguin spend an hour with me and kind of help shape it. They then said, well, you know, we just bought something like this. But the next company, Business Expert Press, gave me a contract for my second book, which now it's in production, it'll be coming out this fall. Because the book's been written, and I, and, and, and I ended up with the my first my first endorsement was from Brian Tracy. I love Brian Tracy. I've been following Brian Tracy for years. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 by investing in myself and not seeing you know I didn't see all of this coming down the road, and then you wonder like well, now what what's going on with all the music and the bass and the, the piano? Well, Steve from Quantum Leap yeah. and 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 Bradley Communications who I work with and got to meet Jack Canfield and take pictures with Jack and introduce my daughter to him and so on. Well, Steve says, you need to check out my piano player at my church. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure he's a nice piano player at your church. And so we eventually got together and had lunch at a, at a airport hotel up in Philadelphia where we had one of our meetings. Well, this piano player at his church happens to be a gentleman named Donald Robinson. Who's a who's a Grammy nominated producer? Yes, and he's now my producer and coach, and he's and we're working on my first album. Fantastic! Got a question for you. I, yes, uh, that just came in. Are you challenging yourself with different styles of music to do certain things? I am. I mean, I, when I did my bachelor's and master's, I did classical. I was I, I played at Carnegie Hall. I played at uh, University of Pittsburgh. Um, and, and, and I did my, my master's in uh, orchestral double bass, you know, the whole classical thing, solos, recitals, and the whole nine yards. And I, so I played, you know, I read music and I played uh, Broadway shows. I played um, funk bands. I played jazz bands. I, I played the ballet, uh, Tchaikovsky, and I played the chamber orchestra. I played other orchestras. So I've always been and seen myself as someone who is a musician and not just well, I love only jazz. I won't play anything else. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll do all of it. Cool. So what challenges have you helped your clients and customers overcome recently? Well, one of my clients is a, uh, a pretty large department of transportation. And, um, and one of the things that I learned early on in life and that I think will, that, that will, especially during this time, I think should help a lot of listeners. If you're trying to move forward in your life, Look in your backyard. It's kind of like the idea of the acres of diamonds. Mm -hmm. um, and I reached out 
to my network on LinkedIn and said, hey, I started my own consulting practice and I'm, I have a service page. If you know if somebody can use these skills, let me know. I didn't ask them directly, but I just said, hey, can you get the word out? Well, one of them called me back and said, what are you doing for three months? Can you, meet, can you be in Richmond? Can you be down in Virginia? I said, sure. It turned out now, six, seven years later, I'm still on that. I still have them as a client. When they brought me in, they had a 14,000 project, $16 billion problem because they weren't able, they needed to be able to um, synchronize and transform how they were managing the road construction across the state. Mm -hmm. And that's how big the problem was. Well, by knowing what I had already known and, and using the concept of the, the, the metaphor of music and whatnot, working with the team, we were able to, in, within 15 days, uh, demo a solution that solved their problem. And we've been on that project, and it's literally just been myself as a subject matter expert and a development, a development team of three, now two, uh, that has like integrated, built, and, and, and customized a solution for a really large client. And we did it through automation and everything else. But again, it was kind of that small jazz ensemble of a team that, um, that did that. Fantastic. Um, I just want you to know, I got a chat that we have someone from the Philippine Islands is watching us now. Okay. So that's actually pretty exciting for me. Welcome. Yeah, to I love that. I, I've actually been to the Philippines. I've actually ah! went to the Philippines once. <laughs> I can't say that I have. So I've been <laughs> some places, but I haven't been there yet. So how did you come up with the idea for the first book of Culture as a Base? I know now how we, it was republished and re. Yeah, uh, it, it kept the same name. It, it kept the same name. Yeah, it kept the same the name. name. How did you come up with that? Culture is the base. Okay, so as so sometimes what you have to do is you have to germinate an idea, write the idea down, and then let it let it marinate, right? And you let it marinate by um, sharing. And you don't have to worry about people stealing your idea because they don't know how to do what you're doing either. And, and <laughs> so 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 I shared my idea with different folks, because they didn't have my talent to be able to pull it off and pull it together. But the more people I talked to, it was the more I began to see the vision of how this would work. And, and, and one of the things that I saw initially was culture is the base. That's a metaphor. Think of, think of your favorite song that you like to dance to. Okay. Think of it and hear the music and hear the bass line. And what makes that song so special? It's the bass line. I love bass lines. <laughs> right, it's yeah. the bass line. Yeah. And it's That's the bass line that, right. that sets the standard for that, that music. And so I thought about, well, 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 what about companies? What makes me, you know, fall in love with certain companies? You know, I like Nordstrom Rack, or I like Nordstrom. Um, I like um, Amazon. I like, you know, just different companies that I, I don't mind, you know, shopping at or, or purchasing their wares or whatever, because I know the customer service, just the experience, the whole nine yards, it's going to be refreshing. It's their culture. So I thought, wait a minute, culture base. The culture is like the baseline. Okay. And so then I started doing research on, well, what makes up culture? And I just kind of went through possibility after possibility. I read a number of Harvard Business Review articles. I read things from the Wharton School. I read things from MIT. I read just, just all of the peer-reviewed um, things that I could get my hands on. And there were seven things that kept standing out. And those became the seven steps in my book. So what are some of those steps? Okay, so, so when you think about culture, I think one of the first things is you have to have an amazing vision. And if you think about where we are right now in, in America, right, we have two political, without getting into politics, we have two separate visions being portrayed. Well, with those visions that are being portrayed, there comes a set of values. So one has this value, one has the other value based on that vision. And then they, they need to get buy-in. They need to get people to buy into what they're, what they're casting, this vision that they're casting. And so the way they do that is they tell stories. Because when we hear stories, you know, like my story of the red guitar, or the story of, of you know, just different things, or, or, you know, working with Willie and D. Jolly, you know, stories, it moves our head, it moves our heart, but it also moves our hands. It gets people to move. And then we have things like best practices. 
and I look at look at best practices as like you know a really nice chocolate chip cookie where the where the the chips are baked in and melting, you know one that you 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 you, you know the one that makes your mouth water, and then then it becomes the environment that you're in, you know whether the environment is a physical environment, a virtual environment, and a operational environment that sets the tone. You walk into a legal office of a top, you know, 100 law firm, that's going to be very different than mom and pop law firm around the corner. And at the end of the day, it's all about getting things done and executing. And execution is a process unto itself. And there has to be a cadence, a rhythm, a vibe that goes into creating execution. And so what I realized in, in doing my research was that it was those seven things that at any time, you can take anyone's culture, and if you start working on any one of those seven things, you can reinvent and, and re-optimize and make the culture much better. Yes, I, uh, a lot of people don't, don't have the patience. A lot of corporations don't have the patience to go back that far. Like, what is the vision and what do we value? What, what do we actually value? And we don't know how to get there. But I like right. the idea of the stories. What stories are we telling? What right. stories do we hear? What stories are being told about us? And I thought about the Nordstrom story where the guy returned a set of tires and <laughs> Nordstrom doesn't even sell tires. And they said, the, the salesperson says, well, sir, we don't have We don't sell tires. We, we bought the tires here. And they said, okay, how much did you pay for them? And they, right. and they took them back and they took them back and they refunded the money. And, and they, like, went, they, they went and sold the tires and gave them to somebody else, another store, because at that point, there was a tire store there. That's like, I bought the tires from here. From here, right. <laughs> so just to come back, right. So you're right. It's the story. So that's the place to, to, look, to look at. What stories do you tell right. about your... And if you think of any, and I, I think I talk about this in my book, is, is the idea that buy-in is a team sport. You know, no one ever wins the NBA finals or the, or the Super Bowl, or the, or, the, or the national pennant as a single person. It's always a team. And then you go talk to the team and they said, man, the coach had this great vision and we had these certain principles that we live by and we all bought into it and we had these great stories that we told and we all made sure we practiced well and we, we kept this certain environment and we just did the work. Well, those are seven principles. Fantastic. And uh, I've got a shout out from a friend of mine, Asara Clay Moorhead. Hey, how are you doing? She said to say hello and to say hello to you. So fantastic. So I've got another question. I, I am writing some of your quotes down too. So I may post some of them by virtue of you, you know, like my end is a team sport. I like that. I think that is really, really a good one. So I hear that you, you do have a publisher you mentioned uh, for your upcoming book, Workplace Jazz. Yes. So how did the idea for that book come about? And, and I, don't, I know this has been a great discussion, but I don't want us to leave this hour without having to talk, talking about your TED Talk and your, the, health the health challenge that you had. So yeah, yeah. Tell us so about Workplace Jazz. Okay, so Workplace Jazz was actually, after I wrote my first book, you know, I'm always of the mindset of, I can kind of make it better. I can keep looking at, I can look at ways to do things. And so by joining the group with uh, Steve Harrison, I, I met a number of book agents and they were like, well, we could do this or we could do that. And so after analyzing, I realized I, I don't want to touch this book. I like it the way it is. It's some, it means something personal to me. So I said, okay, I'm going to take what I've learned now from you know, Jack Canfield and Steve Harrison and so on, and I'm going to write another book. And when I first came up with the second idea for my second book, I called it Building a Symphonic Company Culture. So I was thinking about the symphony again. Okay. And um, long story short, when I sent four pages or four, four chapters to the literary agent, um, we ended up having a call. I was going to, to, to a birthday party my uncle down in Miami. We're in a car. I'm having a, my, someone else is driving, and, and I'm having a call with the literary agent, and he goes, I love, the, I love where you're going, but, but it's been done before. But I know you have this jazz background. So let me, run this, let me run this by you. What do you think about workplace jazz? And I thought, hmm, that sounds, that's interesting. And so I kind of I blurted out in the car and my family was in the car with me. And they were like, I like that. I like that <laughs> concept. So like, okay. And, and then now the literary agent has 40 years experience. 
in the major publishing industry. So at this point, I'm like, I'm putty in your hands. If you tell, tell you know, I mean, without being anything vulgar, if you tell me to call it, you know, dog right. soup, and it's going to bring people in and, and allow me to share my story and make a difference, then that's what I'll do. So the bottom line is, um, I, we came up with the concept. I actually had to rewrite the book because I actually had written most of the first, the second book. So I ended up rewriting the second, re redesigning it, rewriting it, restructuring it. And then I decided to use, to start interviewing other people, other musicians, and also um, have two stories per chapter of, of jazz musicians to tell their stories of people that I've met or people that I admire as, as musicians and speakers. And so, and throughout that process, I actually did a certification in what they call conversational intelligence, which is the neuroscience of mm -hmm. conversations and, and culture. But bottom line, I was able to then take the concepts of productivity, workplace culture, neuroscience, and music, and infuse them into a book that's in, that has a lot of stories, that has science behind it, that has processes and benefits, and then has action items for you to do, and an assessment after each chapter of, what did you get out of that? And here's how you can make it better. And then at the end, if you go through the, 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 the nine steps, because the framework is called improvise. And I always have a ah. framework for my book. So it's basically workplace jazz, how to improvise. And improvise stands for, you know, the various items in there. I'm not going to go through all that right now. But, but bottom line is, at the end of it, I have the reader go through a checklist and say, okay, how am I doing in this area and what am I doing and what do I need to improve? And so by the time they finish the book, they have a roadmap of how to improve their organization and their teams to be high performing agile teams. Oh, that's fantastic. Ted talk time now. Yeah. I love the Ted talk. So, it's like, so I know you've done the tech talk. I've yeah. watched it. So, and so what was the title of the talk? What was it about? Um, and how did you tie all of that together? Okay. So the title of the TED talk is what if practice is a performance? Yes. And, um, <laughs> and um, it, it's, it's really about my life uh, because, you know, one of the, one of the concepts that, that came out of that for me or that I had been, I'd always thought about was, as a musician, even as a working musician, you spend 95% of your time practicing or doing something else instead of performing. You know, even if you're playing in a major symphony and you're playing four days a week, you know, one or two hours a night, that's still only 5% of your time. So the rest of your time is preparing, either physically, mentally, or physically you know, practicing and mm -hmm. developing your skills. And, and the reality is that if you don't love practicing and, and the preparation and all the other work, and then you get on stage and you make a mistake, you're going to be, you're going to feel horrible and you're going to miss the opportunity of what it was like to go through that growth process. And for me, it's more about the journey of becoming than the destination of getting there. Because once you get there, it's like, well, okay, well, what am I going to do now? I got to go someplace else. I, gotta, I, gotta, I need to keep growing because that's the human spirit. So what led up to this talk was six weeks beforehand, I was at a workshop and I had a major bout with vertigo. And vertigo, you know, usually it's the fluid in your ear, or the hair in your ear that gets out of whack and you kind of lose balance and so on. Well, that wasn't my situation. Um, it was, it had something to do with a, a, a viral infection. I don't know what, what it was, but it impacted my right inner ear nerve. You know, it's a nerve that's like a part of your brain. And it, it, it basically wiped out what's called the vestibular system. And it's the ability for us to balance. We balance by our steadiness, by what we see, by our vision, and also by this balancing that's in our ears. Well, the balancing in my ears was gone. I mean, basically I had like 14% capability. I had lost 86% in my right ear. When I walked into the doctor, he basically said, I'm surprised you're not, you're not uh, deaf in your ear. And I was in the hospital for a day and a half. I had come home with a red walker. I was to, to walk on my own. And I felt like I had a concussion. Um, I, had, mm. I had high pitches. I felt like I was out in the middle of the ocean. 
on an ocean liner, but I was laying in bed. I couldn't look at my laptop, couldn't look at television, couldn't, I mean, literally I was like, okay, you're handicapped. And I'm sitting there thinking, am I gonna, is this, is this, is this the rest of my life? Is this where things are gonna be? And so as I sat there, I thought about my talk. And when I auditioned for the talk, there were 233 people that auditioned, 29 of us got accepted. Fantastic. And, <laughs> and so I was, yeah, I was excited about that. But at the same time, I was sitting there going like, I'm not going to let that opportunity go away. <laughs> I don't know. It was just like, no, no, we, we got to fix this. You know, I'm not going back through that again. I may not get in. <laughs> it's, uh, like, listen, vertigo now. All right. Exactly. And so, um, so I'm laying there and I started thinking about the talk. And um, um, the way I got involved in the concepts of neuroscience is my son um, was born with ADD. And and so I wanted to understand what he was going through as he was growing up. And so I did a lot of research and started reading a lot of about neuroscience and I got into it. So, um, so when I wrote the, the program, I kind of always kind of brought neuroscience into what I was doing, even though I've never taken a science class or a med medical class or anything, but I did study a lot, quite a bit of it. Long story short, I'm laying there and I'm thinking about the talk. And I remember one quote from Dr. Norman Deutsch who said, that the brain is made up of networks and if one is damaged and yet it gets activated, the brain will figure out a way to work around that damaged mm -hmm. network and, and rebuild itself. So I thought, okay, so let me eat my own dog food. And as soon as I could sit up and walk with that walker again, I went to, because I worked from home, I went to my office, I grabbed my bass and I sat in a chair and I played a little bit. I was like, thank God I can still play. So I played for like an hour and I was exhausted. I went back to bed. The next day I got up, I didn't need the walker. I was literally holding onto the walls and I, I, I just, I felt different. So I went back and played some more for another couple of hours the next day. And within a short period of time, I'm walking to the mailbox. I'm walking to the front of my house. I'm walking down the street because I used to walk in my neighborhood quite a bit. And within three weeks, when I had my first uh, ear, nose, and throat doctor appointment, I walked in unassisted. And he looked at me, he goes, you've had a dr traumatic brain injury, but you walked into my office. What's, who are you? What do you do? I said, well, I'm a bass player. And I got a TEDx and I'm getting ready. I'm performing. <laughs> I'm working on my TEDx talk. I am going to deliver that TEDx. And so, <laughs> and so six weeks later, three weeks later, I drove up to Delaware and gave that talk. And if you watch the talk, you'll notice I don't move a lot. I'm very, I'm very measured because I was still right in the middle of the whole process, but I had gotten myself to the point where I could deliver the talk. And then I wrote the song Vertigo, which is actually now the first song I'm gonna, that's going to be on my album. <laughs> oh, that is a fantastic story. I do have a question. Um, are there times when you catch yourself feeling sad about something? And if you do, do you think of sad music? No, I don't. I, not that I don't think get sad, but you know, life, life has ups and downs and life's a journey. And one of the things I've learned is, uh, and Dr. Daniel Amen, who's a neuroscientist talks about yes. this. Um, he, he taught, he calls it ants. He, he says, sure does. <laughs> the automatic negative thoughts. thoughts. Right. And, and we all have them. And so I started, I learned, I realized that early on in my life, but I realized that if I never give my brain time to go negative, then I'll, then even if I have a, even if I'm not feeling well, I won't stay there for long. And so, you know, I've had some investments go bad. I had a property that I bought that went bad. And every time I had to go deal with it, I'd put, as I'm driving to go deal with this, I'd put it, put a, a CD in the car and I'd, I'd get fired up as I'm going to deal with this horrible situation. And then when I leave it, I put another CD in to listen to some, you know, personal development or John Maxwell or Brian Tracy. And by the time I came home, I was pumped. And I was in the middle of a valley, you know, just, just I lost that property. It was an investment property, a lot of money. But I, but I was, but, and I kept the keys of the property because it reminded me that failure is a verb, it's not a noun. Because sometimes we fail and we get and things happen and we want to we want to say, well, I failed. I'm a fail. No, you're not a failure. You failed. Everybody fails. Some people go bankrupt multiple times and they still go back and build another business and rebuild what they had. 
And so they real that what they that mindset is, I'm failure is a verb. It's not a noun. And it's not final unless you allow it to be. Exactly. So what did you discover or what have you discovered about yourself that you didn't know during this whole process, the process of the vertigo, the process of the TED Talks, the process of starting out and, uh, and actually investing in who you are and, what you, and who you wanted to become? That I'm stronger than I thought I was. Um, because we go through, we go through hardships, we go through things and especially the, the recovery process, literally, you know, having to walk and, you know, think about a, think about an infant. Um, when you have to, you you watch them walk, they, they have, they have to think right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. Here I am. And it's happened in 2018. So let's say what, two and a half years ago, I'm 55 and I'm having to learn to walk again. And I literally have to think right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. I would put music on right foot, left foot. And I would put some, you know, some positive music on. I'd cry and I'd right foot, left foot. After a while, it got to a point where I didn't have to think about right foot, left foot because I was programming my brain. Mm -hmm. And I realized that, you know what, no matter what you go through, I have this uh, little, um, um, screensavers that says life is difficult and you know whatever whatever doesn't kill you will make you stronger except bears bears will kill you <laughs> i love that i love that except bears bears, will <laughs> except kill you. bears. so so it wasn't a bear that i was dealing with it was just uh, you know it was it was a neurological thing it was this it was that and it was finding the right resources the right relationships the right people around you the right family members to get around you and build you up. And because, you know, what you'll learn too is when you go through things, not everybody who's in, who was in your corner is going, will remain in your corner. And it really begins to show who your true relation, who your true friendships are and, and, and really who, who's, who's got your back and, and the times when things get really difficult. You know, and I've learned also in those instances where as we morph as people and grow and experiment with other things and allow ourselves to expand, some people just can't go with you. It's, right. it's not personal. They just can't go in that space, that new space with you. So you will find that they fall, that they fall off. And right. I just had a thought run across my mind. I did see a special how to survive a bear attack. So, <laughs> so. So watch that special. Well, hopefully it wasn't from that movie Relevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, one of these things that come on where they have these people who are attacked and then they show you what to do and what not to do. These experts, right. it's like, wow. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like, well, first sure. off, I don't want to be in the woods, but I, I, I can go through that. That's my number one thing. Don't go to the woods where bears are, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what advice can you give to our listeners when it comes to culture? Um. Culture is, is one of the most critical things that you can work on, um, whether it's in your family, um, your own personal culture, because we even, you know, what, if you think about those seven steps, we all have our own culture of how we see things. And it's one of the foundational things that will move you forward or hold you back. And so, you know, you have to look for what does a winning culture look like? And what, what, what are good examples? What does that look like? And then when you find them, you, you then go after that and, and you, you, know, you, you spend the money, you, you, you invest in yourself, you read the book, you listen to the book, you take the class. Um, and what you'll find with, with, with this concept of culture and learning and growth is that the more you learn, if, you are, if you're real about it and you're honest, is the more you realize that you don't know. And so you have to then go, I'm gonna focus on these three or four things in life and really get good at them. Everything else I got to delegate and pay somebody else to do because, you know, I can't be good at everything. And so I'm not even going to try. And it yeah, simplifies your life. You need to, you need to say that again. Cause I know a lot of people, <laughs> including me that think they can do everything. You can't, you can't, yeah, you can't, you just can't do everything. You know, it's like, exactly. you cannot do everything. I do have a question in that says, we know that you're working on the new book. So after that, what's your next endeavor and how are you using music to prepare? Okay, so, um, so 
as soon as I finished and got the final manuscript to the publisher, um, I started working on my third book. And because the process I use is by a lady named Ann McAdoo. Uh, she has a book out on Amazon. Um, basically, how to get your book out of your head in 90 days. It's an awesome book. has a great process to it. But basically, I like the first part of the process. I like the whole process. But because by the time I'm ready to start writing the book, I've done so much research and I've, I've organized the material and I've done all the things that I need to do that now it's just painting with numbers. I'm just kind of filling in the, the blanks of, uh, of the structure that I've researched. So, so at this point, I'm, I'm actually working on my, uh, I started working on my third book uh, while the publisher is finishing up my second one. And, um, and with, um, you know, I've, I have a studio here at my home and I'm working on my album. And um, um, instead of trying to do the whole album and feel like I got to have a whole album at one time, no, I'm going to do a single and I'm going to do one song after the next. And if it takes me, you know, one or two months to do each song, which the, with the, my producer, it won't. But, um, but so, I'm, so I'm doing that. I started a new podcast and, um, and um, I'll, I'll be starting an online magazine um, uh, based on another company I'm starting called um, Productivity Intelligence. So do you still play just for enjoyment? I do. I, well, I, I've never played piano. I use piano to compose and I use <laughs> piano for theory and I use piano for personal enjoyment. I've never played piano out professionally and, I've never, and I never will, but I use it as, as something that I get to, it's, it's, it's kind of like my gift to me and I get to, to play it, enjoy it and, and just because it's, it's um, music healed me. And, and I'll never forget the fact that what God has given me is a gift. And it was a gift that I can share with others, but it was a gift that, that gave back to me because it gave me back the ability to walk. It gave me back the ability to, to balance. And, and, and a lot of my, all my friends will say, they know when I'm playing a lot because I look like a kid. I'm like, well, I was always smiling and kind of playful and giddy because, you know, that's just what music does to me. So going back to the practices, the performance. Yeah. When you are working with organizations, do you, how do you practice for that? Well, I think- some, what, How do you prepare? Well, well, there is, in every meeting, um, you know, like, like, like I was working on one team and, and we used to have a, a morning meeting and they stopped doing the morning meeting. I, th I told them that was a bad idea. And then they finally decided to do it again. And they come to the meeting and like, oh, what are we gonna talk about? It's like, guys, what are we doing? So, so I kind of coached them into, you know, we have to, we need this, this, this tool, whether it's a spreadsheet or whatever, that's gonna track everything we're gonna have and we're gonna color code and we're gonna figure it out. And when we come in, we're gonna talk about it and we're not gonna drop any breadcrumbs and we're gonna, we're gonna figure it out and, and work together. Well, they were, were humble enough to say, okay, let's do that. And we get on the, in the morning calls in the morning and it's like, hey, how's it going? Great, what's going on? And we're, we're talking friend, you know, fun stuff. And then we, you know, the guy who's leading it will say, okay, well, here's what I have. These are the only two things I have. Everything else has been covered. We, we've captured all the breadcrumbs. Anybody got anything else? Nope. And then we'll, you know, and if they do, we give them the floor. And so I've kind of, created it like a jam session, if you will, where okay. we have some form of a structure, but everyone feels free to chime in and add value. And we didn't finalize the structure. We didn't know what we were building, but we knew we needed something. And I got the ball rolling with them. And then once they got the idea, they chimed in. And because we all created it, we all have buy-in. Fantastic. So for those that are listening who are in some of those meetings um, and trying to participate in those meetings to either move a project forward or even just to improve the culture. So what are some techniques that they can use in order to create that kind of jam session that well, one, makes it work? The, I got you. One of the first things I, I learned that uh, I, and I'll give the credit to credit to do is from um, 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 Judith, Judith Glazer's book, Conversational Intelligence. Glutith Judith, sorry, Judith passed away in December of pancreatic cancer. And I went up to New York to her funeral. But one of the things she taught in her book and through the certification program was this concept of the, um, 
the rules of engagement. And basically rules of engagement is when you bring a team together for the first time, you get everybody to write down, hey, for us to have a great team and a great meeting and a great work session, what are your values? What are the things that you value about this, this, this type of thing? So everybody wrote down on a sticky note and they put it on a wall. And then we started seeing where people were writing down some of the same things. Mm-hmm. And we kind of codified and created an affinity diagram around this. And then we, as a team, we all selected, these are going to be the things that we're going to value as a team. Well, right there, we got buy-in because everyone, not, no one could sit on the sideline and say, well, I'm not going to share or I'm not going to input. I'm not going to give. When everyone gave and, and gave their opinion and their opinion was honored and they were listened to, wow. really listened to. Okay. Because what, and here's the thing. When we listen to someone, we, we, actually, we actually help them secrete a number of things. Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, GABA. These are all positive neurotransmitters that makes them feel honored. And so when you listen to someone, you're actually giving them a gift. And you're, you're, you're allowing them to breathe. And so they finish the conversation with you and they're like, man, I enjoyed that conversation. I enjoyed talking with you. You know, you, they, they, can't put, they can't put it to words, but they know they walk away feeling much better than when they came. Fantastic. Ha, huh, great idea. So I want you, we're into the last few minutes. So yeah. uh, if people would like to know more about you, how can they contact you? They can go to my website, geraldjleonard.com. Say that again. People they can go writing. to my website, Gerald jleonard.com g-e-r-a-l-d-j-l-e-o-n-a-r-d.com and from there you can you can find out about my books you can find out about my consulting practice you can find out about my assessments my uh i have a store on that website uh you can find uh, tons of articles um on my on my principles of execution website which is under resources i have over 169 articles on that website um, wow. And on the on the workplace jazz, it's workplace jazz.com. You'll find the first chapter of my new book, so you can read that for free. Um, you can also read the first chapter of my first book. Um, there's a little thing that'll come up, and then you can you fill it out, and it'll give you a PDF copy of the first chapter of the book if you want to read it before you buy it. Um, so you can get a, a, a flavor for what the book is about. Um, you can also check out the the a sample of what the album is going to sound like. And then um, with the podcast, you can listen to now four episodes of the podcast. Oh, fantastic. And also you can go out and put it, Google his name or search it. They don't have to use Google, any search engine you use, because I use yeah. about four of them uh, and search his name out and find the TED Talk. And I just, I encourage you to do that. The TED Talk is fun. It's informative. And it's really great to watch once you know the story behind the vertigo. So. Uh, before we close this session, is there one tip you want to give us before we say good night? Always be a lifelong learner. Never stop learning. Because even if you find yourself in a rut and you pick up a book and learn one thing, it could be, that, it could be the one thing that pulls you out of that rut. Or it could be the one thing that gives you the idea of how to get out of that rut. And so for me, it's, it's, I think one of the most important things I can uh, encourage people with is to be a lifelong learner. But with that, I want to thank you very much for agreeing to allow me to interview you and pick your brain and ask you all these wonderful questions. Uh, and, and, and I want to thank you for actually helping me understand that practice is the performance. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so very good. now I'm a friend of practice now. So I'm glad. I play a little bit of piano. I play a little bit of piano. So I've even started looking at music that I want to learn. So you've had a great influence on me. So with that, I want to say to all of the listeners and viewers, do not go gently into that good night. Find a heel worth dying for and take it. Be the person you're waiting for and make today so awesome that yesterday gets jealous. And above all else, do it your way. Remember, as I always say, dream big, as life is too short to drink cheap champagne. I'm Stephanie Wilson-Coleman, the Empowerment Doctor, and this has been Gerald Leonard. It has been our pleasure to be with you this evening. And I want you guys to just simply have a fantastic day and stay in the baseline because it's all about the base. <laughs>
<laughs> Good night. <laughs> Buy me a better brand to taste with mine.